Yes. Looking I'm good. seeing blue lines. You're seeing blue yes. lines? I am. I am. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Patreon-exclusive episode of No Country. This is P19, recorded Monday, October 11th, 2021. I'm coming at you, not live, from Norman, Oklahoma, in the USA, zip code 73071. Chris is coming to you from Las Vegas, Nevada. I don't know what your zip code is. I, I've forgotten at the moment. I, I'm sure I could work it out, oh, but uh, yeah, it, I. But I am, and I, I'm really, I'm, I'm really pleased to be here. We, uh, well, David was dealing with a tornado and giant hail yesterday. Uh, we were dealing with a monster uh, windstorm, which obscured Black Mountain, which I'm, I'm. That's my reference point. I'm right, I'm right below Black Mountain, mm-hmm. which has some pretty serious. Uh, telemetry uh, towers on top and everything was lost in the dust storm and now the moon is out how is your breathing uh you know it was too windy to go outside (laughs) and i looked at i looked out and i thought well you know when, when there's just all this stuff blowing through the parking lot you think do i really need to go outside you know no the answer is i didn't then no no Sometimes I would get windstorms like that in uh, El Paso, as a matter of fact. The de- desert windstorms are no joke, especially when you get dust natos that come at you. I don't know if you've ever been hit yeah. by a little dust devil, but they're, uh, they're really nasty. And I've seen some out in the desert while I'm driving between El Paso and Oklahoma. You go through little towns like Tornillo, and you look out into the scrub and you'll just see a little swirling dervish out there and think, man, the spirits are alive, dude. They are out there. They are, you know, and you just reminded me of, a well, it's a silly, embarrassing story, but I think it is worth sharing. I was out in the Valley of Fire, which is about 70 miles north of Vegas, and is just a sacred spot. It's a state park, but it is absolutely unbelievable for rock formations. Uh, but I was out there, and there was a dust devil in the distance. And I thought, fantastic. It had some real substance to it. Not big, but substantial, you know? And uh, I thought, wow, I'm going to get a photograph of it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I got all set, and I was ready to... And it started to make its way toward me, and I thought, "Oh, oh dear, oh, <laughs> oh dear, yeah, I'm I'm out of here, man." Because I I think the spirit of that thing was a little pissed off at me, you know. And but, I, so I bolted back to my car. Well, you look at dust devils, and you put yourself in the position of, say, a native uh, walking through the desert and seeing something like that. And, of course, now we have a, an understanding of what's going on, quote-unquote, with a dust devil. And that reminds me of the storm that was coming yesterday. I had a conversation going on via text message with a friend of mine. And she said, what even causes thunder and lightning? And so I looked it up, and it's, you know, there's positive and negatively charged. Uh, there's electrons and protons, right on these different cloud right. shelves and they they meet up and you know of course the, the 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 earth has its own charge and so this electricity is going from point a to point b and it's so hot that it's expanding the air around it and it creates these big thunderclaps 
And I read that and I said, no, screw all that. It's it's God. It's because it's a God <laughs> and it's angry. I'm going with yeah. that. That is what I choose to believe. And you can't you can't make me believe in an electron. You cannot force me to believe in electrons. I refuse. Well, you know what? If nothing else, and I'm not saying there isn't a great deal more else, but if nothing else, thinking that way has historically accounted for so many fantastic myths, stories, artwork, and I'm not sure the electrons have done as well. Yeah, you know? exactly. I, I just how many great you know? how many great gripping tales have you read about a freaking electron? Not very many. Not very many. Unless it's no, I can't think of any. That's a great point. <laughs> well, L. Frank Baum wrote one you know story called I think it's called an electric fair. No, the electric key. I don't know, but Dover Press publishes it still. But nobody's heard of that. I mean, there, there there are great science adventure books, but not when it comes to... Well, here's the thing. Imagine a symphony orchestra, right? And you've got a percussionist on the bass drums, you know, the really serious deep thing, doing thunder. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what's on his mind? Is it is it expanding air mm. or... Is it some angry gods having some kind of war? Right. You know? Right. What's and I I think that's the test, you know? What what's going on there? She said that's, that that's it was, a good uh, test. She said that her mother used to tell her that it was potatoes falling out of God's wagon. And I said, oh. I think your mother is right. Um But Chris, uh, on this episode, on this bonus Patreon episode, you had a great idea for a topic today and I wanted to just uh, kind of introduce it you said language as being rooted in paranoia and that set all kinds of electrons firing in my brain got all the spirits okay. speaking so I want I want to know where you're going with this because this feels very true to me Okay, it is going somewhere very interesting, and I, I'm, again, not going to claim originality for this framework, but I am going to say that I think the, the words that I use to pin it down uh, deliver some stark <clears throat> clarity and a good takeoff point for discussion. But before we get to that, do you want your imaginative challenge? Oh my goodness gracious, thank you for remembering that. I got too excited about language being rooted in paranoia and completely forgot about this and I'm genuinely looking forward to it. So please give me my imaginative challenge. Okay. These change every week for listeners tuning in. The idea is to explore David's improvisational abilities. He has not heard this before. You're hearing it with him. It's something I've tailored to him. We're going back to storytelling as a form. We jump around uh, from story ideas to uh, arguments, but this time it's a story. And I think we can give it the working title, Tornado Girl. Okay, this is a good Oklahoma story for a native Oklahoman. In a suburb area, suburban area of Oklahoma, Uh, There's a family with a seven-year-old daughter named Felicia. And on her birthday, 
lovely day, on her birthday, they invite five of her classmate friends over for a backyard party. And one of the implements props on hand is a bouncy castle mm -hmm. or an inflatable jumping house, right? Well, the kids are having a great time. And at one point, they are all inside the bouncy castle when a freak tornado hits and whisks the entire structure away with the children. Five of the children, they're never found. No bodies. They just have vanished. One child, Felicia, whose birthday it was, is found. But oddly, 30 feet up a lone dead tree. Well, she makes all of the headlines. Tornado Girl. It's a miracle. She's on Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, everybody. Everybody's interested. Well, of course, the other parents are just in shock. They're grieving. They're mystified. They don't know what to do. How do they react to Felicia, the miracle tornado girl? That is your challenge, Mr. Osborne. All right. Any questions? This is five sets of parents? Yes. Six in total. Five others. Five missing children. Vanished. Never to be found. Yep, I got it. Okay, no questions. Okay, well, we all look forward to this. This is tailored to you at this, you know, post-hurricane trauma time. Okay, well, on with the show, shall we? Okay, well, there is a deep-seated argument within anthropology, human geography, history... Did humans, and David and I are of the view that that is decisively linked to the idea of culture with a capital C, which we refer to as the ghost radio signal. Did the explosion of human consciousness and possibility of mind, did that arise from terror or delight? What form did that initial awareness take? And people in those fields don't like to talk about that stark a binary. But in fact, it, there's a lot of belief one way or the other. It's, it's kind of like political parties, or in Emerson's terms, the parties of memory or hope. I like that term. Memory being you know, the conservative point of view, traditional, indigenous culture style. And then there's hope, always new innovations, new gadgets, new future progress. Blah, blah, blah. I think that's a good binary. But as an origin point binary, terror or delight, were we afraid of the world uh, to the point of terror? Did, did that drive us into the caves and around the fire and, and force new modes of communication? Or did we be begin in delight? Storytelling, the invention of humor, 
Think of that. Think of that idea, the invention of humor. Uh, celebration, gratitude. Uh, those are two, I think, really important binaries of, of philosophy of, of humanity. Mm -hmm. So what, what do you think of that as a starting point? And then I'm going to lead us back to how that connects with language. I think that's a perfect starting point. It's clear to me. Okay. All right. Okay, here's um, why I have put forward the proposition, as David mentioned, that language, capital L, the idea of language, begins in paranoia. All right? So that's obviously kind of on the terror side of my earlier binary. And I was thinking about it this way. I was looking at two forms that are very important to me and I know are to many people. I was thinking of language, capital L, and music, capital mm -hmm. M. And I thought, well, a lot of people you would you know link put them under uh, the rubric of codes, the idea of coding. And we hear so much about coding in a computer sense. And I think a lot of that is very simplistic. I think the idea of codes presupposes uh, selective understanding. So there is implicit in the idea of codes a non-transparency. You have to be able to decode it. You have to be within the circle of the code. David and I earlier talked about the Coolering Circle and the Trobrian Islands. The circle is a pretty powerful core metaphor. And if you're outside the circle, then it doesn't make any sense. So codes presume an us versus them binary. Mm -hmm. And if language is in any way thought of as a code, and I would suggest because there, there is not just one universal language, uh, in, in in language terms, that means there are profound levels of us versus them thinking, which I would suggest is a good working definition of functional paranoia. Hmm. So that's kind of my starting point. I like it. Okay, so... The us versus them brings to mind uh, the idea that Adam was given the responsibility of naming all of the animals. Uh, oh, I like that. Yeah. That has been variously interpreted as the, the movement from infant to child, being able to understand other people as separate from yourself, and the word being very... Uh, very important in that all the way to the more boring interpretation that it's about man's dominion over the animals his ability to name them separates him from them and therefore he's allowed to enslave and kill them as he sees fit i don't like that one very much but when you're thinking of adam as naming the animals in order to sort of individuate them and create a kingdom of, of animals that is the ultimate in the original separation of himself from from this creation and eventually when eve eats the apple they go out to join those animals in that kingdom right so then that's the kind of separation between man and god but i do i understand your your reasoning here which is that 
language comes from creating a code to say that I am this thing, we are this separate thing, and they are something else entirely, and they might in fact be dangerous. Now, what that leads me to wonder about is that we are living in an era almost entirely made up of data, numbers, and words. So has the the impulse to separate and to be paranoid and fearful of others gone completely haywire and secondly is the is the move to maybe cultivate silence i've been thinking about this a lot lately cultivating silence i wrote down in my notebook today why is your brain always running at 95% you're not doing advanced calculus how about you tone it down to about 60% and then turn it on when it's actually needed for example doing this podcast right like my brain is going really fast right now and i don't think you or the listeners would enjoy it if my if i was kind of operating at half capacity um but is that important like and i i, I Sorry I'm talking so much, but I just have to make this quick distinction that I'm not talking about meditation because I feel like meditation is too much of a of a positive. I'm talking about a negative, a, a, a lack of things, a lack of words, I guess I should say, instead of things. Okay. Well, look, there's, there's a, there was a lot going on because that was just a great rap. Uh, I, I loved the exposition of the Adam and Eve story. I thought that was just beautifully done. Uh, it was just perfectly in register and 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 absolutely uh, uh, just a yeah a really not a summation mm-hmm. but but a real crystallization of it. Thanks. Uh, then I I had uh, a revelation that I haven't thought. It's again simple. But I believe in simple things. I, I haven't ever thought of it this clearly, and this is kind of a standalone thought. But it is. It, I think it's worth uh, teasing out at some other point because I want to get onto something else that David said. But it occurred to me that if we think of language, if we if we think of it from another point of view other than a code, and I think code fits into a, a larger category, I think we'd say it's magic. Mm, yes. You know, I think there's an element of magic that the fact of the word made flesh, the ability to name, I mean, that's, that's just fundamental to the idea of language, capital L, and fundamental to our idea of the ghost radio signal. So the thing that that immediately suggests to me, and I wrote this down this simply, uh, magic is not equal. It's not egalitarian. That's by definition. Mm-hmm. Animist magic societies don't really think that everybody is, is equal. They know that's not true. They know that some people have more magic or are more skilled at magic. And I think we forget that. I think we forget that framework because we we are so driven to think of equality in, in socio-political and economic terms. But, you know, it's just not that simple. You know, it might be about connecting to spirits, of being able to call down the thunder and the lightning. Yep. You know, that's one of the 
you know, I don't think we can just dismiss all these, you know, really, uh, yeah, they may be mythic implications or uh, psychic, but I think they're very real. And when Dave and I are, are recording this on Indigenous People Day in America, uh, I think we should think about yeah. what the indigenous animus magic mindset really is on, on this kind of topic because it's, uh, it, it, it's complex. It's complex. Um, what, but then I, I... Well, go ahead, Devin. Oh, I, do, would I got I, another would I point. Be, would I be derailing you if I interjected something here? I don't think so. Okay, cool. No, All I right. hope not. I All hope right. not. Cool. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't want to completely throw you, throw you off track. I, I hate it when uh, I'm listening to a podcast and somebody interrupts and completely messes up the flow. But what you're saying is so interesting because uh, Language is Magic was put very beautifully by Alan Moore, the comics writer, who said there's a reason why it's called spelling. Right, the word the word mm-hmm. spell is very key there. Yes, yeah. Something else that you yeah. said there. You said magic is not equal. Well, if magic is language, then that means language is not equal either. And I correct, th- and we know that <laughs> we absolutely know that on several different levels. Here's the level that's really compelling to me: is that if language is not equal, then what we're what we're saying is that language is uh, is both magic and also a code, but those might be two completely different things linked only by putting words into syntax, using grammar, things like that. But we're actually talking about two completely different things that intersect at times. The magic language can intersect with the code paranoiac language and often does, but they're actually two things. Uh, I, I, I just I like that a lot. <laughs> and they're oscillating, oscillating back. That's a term yeah. that we use. That that's I think the best way to, to talk about that engagement. They are constantly oscillating back and forth, and I think we can feel that intuitively. I mean, that would be how I think of language, as in a simple terms, without using more language. That that's what I would say. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the oscillation between those two different modes. Uh, but the other thing that you said that I liked, that, that I thought was interesting, uh, you, you talked about a movement towards silence. And just independent of, of anything that we've been talking, I was thinking today about, uh, I think I've been reading something about Elon Musk or something, but I was thinking, how do we define real wealth and privilege today. I mean, there are many ways we do it, being able to buy anything, you know, consumer. But I thought the first things that came to my mind, well, is privacy. Yeah. You know, they can actually buy that. They, it may be hard to defend sometimes. That's kind of up to the, to them, their choosing. Uh, I mean, you can look at the, you know, the list of the world billionaires, and I guarantee most of the people you have never heard of. Uh, but... When I thought about privacy a bit more, the words peace and quiet came to mind. Mm. Sure, they can have all the stimulation they want. You know, they can charge it up and just blow their brains out. Some of them do. Mm -hmm. But they do have the choice to really get quiet. Mm. And I think that's that's an interesting um, direction you were going to get because it's the commodification 
of, of silence. Yeah. You know? Right. That's wild. Yeah. That's a wild thing. Right. The commodification of silence is huge. Uh, this is the problem that I have with things like the Headspace app. Not with the practice of meditation itself, but with the very idea that being still, sitting upright, and attempting to both note and then dismiss passing thoughts is used in service of becoming a more productive member of society. When mm. the purpose is the problem. You're, you're, you're supposed to... Yeah. Yeah, I say supposed. I'm trying not to use that word anymore because what are we really all supposed to do? But ideally, <laughs> ideally, you would be able to shut up and not think anything at all for no good reason. Mm. A complete experience of life. That's when life gets in. Have you ever had moments... I had this moment stuck in traffic in El Paso uh, that was on par with any psychedelic experience that I've ever had. Thankfully, I still had the motor skills to operate my vehicle. But I was in traffic and I was behind a green Nissan Sentra and I was just looking at its bumper, completely stuck and completely banal, nothing special about it at all. But for a split second, so powerful that I can still remember it, I felt extremely both in and of the the world. Do you know what I'm saying? Hmm. It's, it's, I do. It's a kind I do. It's of a very powerful experience. Yeah, it's a kind of clarity that you that was so unique that you know, and I've never I've never experienced that again, drugs or no drugs. But I wonder well, there's a possibility that it was, you know, the carbon dioxide accumulating in the cab of my vehicle. That's possible. <laughs> uh, sure. I, yeah. But I'd like to but... I'd like to think that I was just that my mind was actually completely silent for a moment and I was experiencing life. Well, in that sense, I don't think it matters the cause, you know, mm -hmm. and you may never know what the cause was. It's not kind of really what's relevant is the experience. Yeah. And yeah, and that's what you really you don't even remember in my terms. I, I think it's still alive for you, mm -hmm. you know, so I think that's a very powerful experience. Uh, well, to pursue this a little bit further, I think it's worth looking at some other notions of coding, whether that is really a good way of thinking of it or not. Uh, and, and, and two come to mind, uh, music and mathematics. And I'm going to put aside mathematics because I think that came well and truly after language and music. I think music and language have a very intense oscillation that we we could never really fully appreciate but we had early instrumentation in the terms of, of just slapping the hands singing drum you know stringed instruments are going you know that's how the the bow and arrow really started more as a musical instrument not as a weapon uh, that may not be clear to a lot of people I mean look at and look at the connection between breath instruments and blowguns, you know, there's a lot of um, a lot of things going on with music. 
I think that music, although it has a wide range of functions and it can have very powerful military uh, implications, you know, think of like, you know, hearing bagpipes or, you know, uh, a whole tribe of Zulu people mm. chanting and drumming. I mean, that would get that would get me moving in the yeah. other direction. You know, I'd be scared. Mm -hmm. But generally, I think, uh, and I the I'll, one just brief uh, detour of background. I've just been listening to some very old tapes, which I fortunately digitized back around the turn of the century, and they're recordings that I made uh, in Vanuatu. New Guinea and the, and the Solomons. And there is a section of water drumming, which is very, it sounds, you know, very simple. No, well, no, it's not. And this is a tape of women water drumming while doing the wash at this waterfall that I knew really, really well. And it, it got me thinking. So my view is that music began in delight. To tie back to our earlier binary of terror versus delight, I think that that's an interesting way to view the oscillation. And David, this goes back to your point about, you know, between, you know, coding and, and magic, you know, it's an oscillation between music and language. Mm -hmm. What do you think of that? I'm gathering my thoughts here. I think that the oscillation between music and language as coming from from delight i'm sorry i got a little i got a little lost with what i was thinking about here well to to kind of put this in perspective if we say that language has within it an oscillation mm -hmm. between terror and delight mm -hmm. and if, if we're just going to grant my terror and delight thing from we can also see that music has the same oscillation within it. Yep. You have this great celebrational, joyous, making a joyful noise, you know, but you also have war drums mm -hmm. and intensity, you know? Mm -hmm. So my next proposition, and I think this might be a way of looking at the two-spiritedness within all of us, is that we have that oscillation between terror and delight. Mm -hmm. We may have many sub-personalities. There are so many frames we can put on it all. Mm -hmm. But I think there is some, some practical benefit in thinking of our own psyches as that kind of oscillation, not opposition, oscillation between terror and delight. I think that's 100% true, and I think that a lot of the gray tasteless malaise this kind of malevolence that that is that also oscillates between banality and hopelessness comes from attempting to stop the oscillation between delight and terror yeah that's a good one yes yeah right because i have <sighs> often thought i thought this the other day i was playing with my son and I was making silly faces at him and he was laughing and I thought man I wish that this could go on forever 
and I got a bit melancholy because, you know, you start to think about the fact that he's going to grow up and this these kind of moments won't happen anymore, right? Fast forward to the next day, the evening, I'm in my bathroom in complete <laughs> terror at this tornado yeah. that's looming over. But you know, I slept like a baby that night. And when I woke up, I played with my son and I did not attempt to look at my phone. I actually, today, it's been very bizarre because I've actually lost my phone about three times because I haven't had it with me and I haven't cared to to really look at it until you and I started this conversation. But I think that being being brave in the sense that you are brave enough to face the terror sure right but man being brave enough to actually face the delight is the trick that a lot of people don't get right because it's its own kind of scary to really engage with that delightful kind of stuff and a lot of people opt for option or i should say for door number three which is gray and boring and just okay Fuck that. <laughs> give me give me the oscillation. Exactly. You know, and I think that is one of the defining elements of creative, uh, you know, artistic, intelligent people, that they really do want to move between, you know, those two very dramatic ends of an oscillation and to keep things dynamic. I mean, dynamism is always the right answer, in my view. I, I, I really... And I think, as the Solomon Islanders would say, there's nothing more dynamic than being still. You know, yeah. I always love that. I like that. Yeah, but you know, um, I don't know if people know. Uh, I, David just made me think of one of my favorite novelists, Walker Percy, and uh, he is quoted in the book that we're going to start our book club on about the artist Robert Irwin. But it's from a, a National Book. Uh, award winner uh, the moviegoer his first novel because um, he trained as a doctor um, which has a beautiful passage about the search the search is what all people would undertake you know if that 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 I'll leave that to you to find because it's a lovely piece but he asks a simpler question of are we afraid of people shooting at us in a war situation or are we afraid nothing like that will ever happen to us. Mm. You know, and I think that's a really great way of putting it. It's like, you know, and it, it has a lot to do with our relationship with popular entertainment of how we're trying to negotiate that terror delight thing. But David, I think your point about being able to withstand and cope with the delight is, is a beautiful, beautiful idea. It's because I think that's exactly right. I, I think it's easy easier, let's not say easy, no, easier to package, in a sense, terror, as amorphous as that might be. I think, actually, delight is more, is, is subtler, you know? Right. And I think that if you think about people who've had, who are serial monogamists, and they have relationship after relationship, and they say things to the effect of, I'm too scared to get close to people because I'm afraid of being hurt. 
I don't believe that. <laughs> I don't believe that. They're fine with oh, being hurt. They're fine with being they're hurt. They're sociopaths. They do it all the time. They do it all the time. What they're yeah. what they're really afraid of, what they're really afraid of is the idea that they might actually feel delight and love. And the reason why is because it's as simple as those are very powerful feelings all all on their own without their inverse without the relation to the thing that will come when that feeling is gone i don't buy for a second that they're like because i think that if they knew how sweet the the sadness would be when true love breaks and your your heart dissolves and all that, if they knew how sweet <laughs> that feeling was they'd go for it as fast Whoa. as they could as fast as they could Whoa. but they're scared they're scared of the good stuff man i think a lot of people are scared of the good stuff right what if uh, what if i fail what if i it can be a lot it can be a lot it can be like an orgasm that's too powerful and you feel like you got to hold on to something shit can be scary man <laughs> but i think that there's a real wow. fear of delight the fear of having fun. Well, I just, I'm having a hell of a lot of fun because I just, I feel like I went through a kind of tornado, if you can imagine, of the Hallmark Channel, LSD, and some, uh, well, like Eric Byrne, who I think was, mm. was actually a really cool psychologist. Mm -hmm. And I don't care if he was successful as an, as an author. I think some of his ideas are really, really interesting still. Mm -hmm. That was just crazy. You were, you were just, you were, you were rapping, man. Yeah. Oh, Sometimes, well, I got a lot of stuff going on these past few days. <laughs> I'm just yeah, happy we're, to be We're getting here. some post, hey, this is post- tornado stress disorder that's right there you go yeah that's right there you go a little bit of that PTSD, indeed but um but no i really uh I, I dig the vibe of all this stuff that we're talking about this idea of oscillation and movement between uh different feelings different registers different modes um because i think that that is in direct opposition to the current attempt that we have that not that we have let me rephrase that the current attempt that the archons the evil insectoid overlords who are all about control and censorship <laughs> want they want to flatten everything out put yeah you know put plastic uh plastic nubs in all the light sockets they want to make sure that all the edges are sanded off of everything and that life just becomes this I don't know if you've ever seen these uh, music videos from the early 2000s, late 90s, from the band Tool, where you have these little clay, yeah, claymation have. that are made yeah. out of sand, you know? That's always what I think about the ideal archonic worldview is, where, don't worry, you'll never feel pain, but you'll, I mean, you'll never feel delight either. You're not going to feel anything. And if, man, the whole, I, I really do think that the whole reason that we're created is because what uh, what we are when we're outside of these human bodies isn't capable of feeling this oscillation that we're talking about. So it's in the in the change itself that uh, that's kind of our duty that we took on when we chose to be incarnated here uh, is to is to experience all these things within uh, within reason.
Well, you know, I just I went back to look at Joseph Campbell, mm -hmm. uh, who's, you know, said I think he got overexposed on the Bill Moyers thing, and you know, a series. It, it, he did get a, you know a little bit too much attention, but nevertheless, he opened the doors and created a lot of interest in mythic studies, that aspect of anthropology and literature, and he has a lovely line, which is just so simple. You have to learn to recognize your own depths, hmm. you know, and that really is the essence of the entire notion of of myth, animus magic, the emergence of storytelling and history. And it's all about coming to terms with our own depths. And yet the flattening steamrolling forces of what David calls, you know, the archons, uh, which is a, a lovely part of a, a, a larger mythology um, and a, a graphic novel series that I love. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a broader term, but I, I really love that point of view. And their goal is to reduce us to... Uh, Basically, uh, clay, uh, cartoon, you know, animated figures. Mm -hmm. um, and that th that is happening in the sense that I think psychic engagement is being uh, resisted ever more fully where possible. Noise is being used as a distraction idea. So if you can't get away from stuff, turn up the volume so you don't hear the spirit world. Uh, you know... That, that's kind of where we are headed. And I think that where that process began, where there, there really was a, a decisive culture-wide withdrawal from psychic engagement, I think that's a possible defining point of what we mean by modernity, yeah. what David and I mm -hmm. mean by it. Mm -hmm. you know? Absolutely. It, it ties right into the notion of progressivism and empathy and choosing kindness, which we riffed on a few episodes ago. All of these ideas sound so good in theory. Who wouldn't want to be empathetic and kind? Probably the single most amount of, I, I wouldn't go so far as to call it hate mail, but concerned mail from listeners came from our empathy episodes where I'm essentially saying that or how it's being interpreted, interpreted is that empathy is actually a bad thing, that it's tricky. Uh, it's a bit more complex than that, and <laughs> we did a whole episode on it, so I won't retread that ground. But what I will say is that there is a slippery slope that is very real from practicing progress, kindness, and empathy into the complete neutering of society. Uh, while you were talking, I had this image in my head. You ever seen these Russian daredevil kids who will climb skyscrapers and hang off of them by yeah. two fingers? And they take these absolutely vertigo-inducing, sickening photos of them, you know, with their, you know, dangling between two huge steel pylons a half a mile up, right? You just look at it and you go, oh my god, that is so insanely dangerous. There have been a couple of kids who've died doing this obviously there was a couple they they do these couple photos where a guy will be hanging on by one hand off the edge of a building and he'll have one hand 
clasped around his uh, his girlfriend's wrist and she'll be kind of dangling like that. Those have ended poorly as well too. But if you want to look at it from a metaphorical perspective, what better metaphor do we have here than kids who are uh, scaling this architecture that can be quite beautiful, but really represents the uh, progress, right? An achievement, human human ingenuity, and also safety. The buildings aren't going to topple over in the wind. They are they're these monoliths that we built in which you can be good little neoliberal subjects and spend your life uh, pecking away at a computer and getting a really, really bad back doing that. Uh, and they're <laughs> and they're climbing these things and dangling off of them. They're saying, fuck you. We're going to make this as dangerous as it possibly can be in defiance of laws, right? So that image to me is is a really is a really good one. Maybe we could all try to find ways of metaphorically scaling buildings although i will go ahead and say that if you want to do that nothing but respect from me because free soloing those guys have got big balls and girls girls can have balls too and ah <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh man you are you are definitely on a roll it's just i i, I just don't know where where to go but uh <laughs> I, I, I did think that, you know, one of my many um, beliefs about at least American culture is that part of us was still back in the mid-19th century, or alternatively, some of their leading lights were enormously uh, prophetic. And uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson is someone I really have some time for. Uh, but one of his many hundreds of great quotes is simply, I hate goodies. Goodies make us very bad. Yeah, and funny. I think that really, I mean, that's as good a meme, you know, uh, for a mid-19th century, you know, uh, individual that as could possibly be imagined, I think. Yeah, yeah. You know? That's great. That's great. Well, we're coming up. Well, it looks actually we actually uh, passed the 45-minute mark. So we are now in the back segment of the show. Um, let's talk about Tornado Girl, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And, and I don't want you to, to rush this because this, was a, this is a good one. Yeah, no. I, um, I have been thinking about it, and there are several angles that I want to talk about this from with some very key points thrown in there. So let's say that Tornado Girl is a novel that I'm writing. How would this particular story be split up? So I think that the actual incident itself, that would all be prologue. You could fit that very nicely mm -hmm. into a prologue. Okay. What I would be interesting, or interesting, what I would be interested, rather, in exploring for the first part of the novel, maybe not too long, but the first part of the no novel would be grief, right? So the, the, okay. the two major themes that I would be exploring here would be grief and potentiality. Because okay. the five children who went up in that bouncy castle, never to return, uh all had the potential to grow into adults with lives, right? 
Well, what I would like to see happen through some mechanism that I haven't quite worked out yet. Maybe it has something to do with that dead tree. Um, I would like to see Felicia become a vessel for those five missing children. So Felicia has taken on the spirits of these kids, but not just the spirits, she is now privy to what their entire futures would have looked like. Um, Wow, okay. And so what would follow would be uh, hopefully not too bloated of a novel because it would be dealing with five sets of parents and how they how they dealt with this phenomena that just can't be explained. You could do the classic movie trick of, you know, in turn she kind of goes to each one of them and she knows something that she couldn't possibly know about the relationship that the missing child had with with their parents. But it would be an interesting way to explore grief and potentiality and how uh, people deal with both of those things because you'd have certain sets of parents that that just wouldn't want to know like they wouldn't want to know what their kid would have become had not this freak accident happened alternatively if we're thinking of a villain for the thing it would obviously be a set of parents that actually wants to kidnap felicia and force her to Uh to live as their missing child because all she would have to do would be to follow the steps that are already in her mind, that are already there. And finally, this gets a little bit dark, but the way that I would see it playing out would be 20 years later to have Tornado Girl, Felicia, as a schizophrenic on the streets of maybe San Francisco or Portland, uh, finding some way through... Maybe, maybe drugs, maybe something less depressing, to to cope with all of these voices that are still chattering at her and living through her. Oh wow! Um, oh wow! And that is where uh, the the book would end. Well, the book would actually end with the with the parent who's the last holdout, uh, buying Felicia a cheeseburger and them sitting in silence at a McDonald's or something. And Felicia opens her mouth to say something, and the parent would stop her and say, I didn't come here to talk. I don't want to know anything. I, I just want to hang out with my daughter for a few minutes. And then, cut. Wow. Well, listen, that was absolutely a thing of, of wonder and delight. I That is my gift to you. I think you need to really think about that, because that was well... Crafted in real time. Again, I will remind listeners, David had not heard that before. I, I absolutely swear by that. Uh, that was really interesting on multiple levels. Again, well done. Thanks. The, the bigger the challenge, the the better uh, the performance. Well, I'm, I'm, I, I'm excited. Well, thank you for That's the prompts. That's part of the method. Yeah, these prompts have been amazing for me. Uh, they've really helped with my creativity. And frankly, I'm using them. I'm just straight up taking them. When I did my reading, I called, I called you and said, hey, Chris, what should I do? Because you're this deep well of inspiration and thought experiments 
and quotes and phrases. And so, uh, yeah, this has just been uh, really huge for a somewhat stagnating creativity that I felt over the past four or five years, uh, brought on by many things that we've talked about on this show. But I shall talk about them no longer because I reject the premise of all of them. Creation, (laughs) discussion, conversation, fun, jokes, sex, tornadoes. That's where I'm at. Right on, right on. Well, you're 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 on fire uh, in just in very exciting ways, and it's it's uh, it's it's really enjoyable for me, and I I, I know for our listeners. Um, and one of the things that we uh, promise and we try to deliver on is a kind of psychic defense, psychic affirmation tip. Okay. Well, here's a, a tip for the week. I just need a little bit of background. I was uh, walking with my sister when I was up in Seattle, and she used a word to describe someone we know. And it just seemed so appropriate to me, I couldn't believe it. But it was a really, really simple word. It kind of slipped through to have real meaning and resonance. Well, there was a lot of stuff going on, and I I just couldn't. I couldn't remember what it was. Well, one of my things is uh, memory exercises. And this is a memory relaxation tip uh, that will help you when there is something that you just, you've almost got it. We have that experience a lot. But for me, this was all about because it was a simple word, a quiet, unassuming word, but it was so perfect and on target. So... Here are the three ways as part of my 10-point plan. I'll only share three with you now. Many, many people from Bruno and Raymond Lull onwards and onwards nearer in time who talk about memory magic. The principle is physicalizing Mm -hmm. memory, localizing it in some way. Uh, Bruno's idea of the memory uh, palace or memory cathedral is is an example of that. Well, I try to physicalize things in real physical terms. And the first of my three tips is very basic. I have a, I do a lot of thinking out on my balcony, at least over these hotter months. Mm-hmm. I'll probably do less. And if I forget something, my first thing is I'm going to go back to the balcony because I think I, that was where it came to me. That's the, I. What was I thinking then? Mm-hmm. Okay. That is something a lot of people know. If you can, if you have, if you think that you've had some sort of thought and you can actually go back to that physical space, as silly and as basic as that sounds, it is enormously powerful. And that gets you ready for tip number two. Hide behind a door as if you're a child playing hide and go seek or as if you're, part, you're playing a game with your partner or roommate, or just being silly. But hide behind the door as if someone is going to come through. Now, I don't know why this works, but it does. If you actually do it, and you are really trying to remember something, you just think, damn, why can't I do it? Hide behind a door. Now, the third thing is a little bit weird. I want you to imagine sneaking into a neighbor's place that you've never been inside. You have no knowledge of it. 
Now that psychic imaginative projection will really scramble things around because you've suddenly got a dramatic scenario to be embedded within. You're in your neighbor, so that, that's already weird. It's, you know, it could be criminal. You don't know what's going on. Will they come back? That psychic imaginative little projection of mind will bring your memory back. So those are my tips. I like that you turned I the do. memory palace into a B&E situation. That's, uh, yeah. that's cool. <laughs> Thank you. That's cool. Thank you. Yeah. That's that's a well said, man. That's well said. Yeah. Oh, far out. All right. Well, dream time. are we ready then to hit the dream? My favorite part. Let's go. Okay. Well, this was in in New Guinea. People do not live the same way. There are three major configurations. There are homesteads of of isolated. Uh, families or individuals, you know, kind of like ranches, mm. but, you know, in, set into that environment. There are some standard villages that are kind of like, you know, in, a, in one sense, a, a kind of suburb, you know, with, with nuclear or extended families under one roof. But very often there is a, a segregation of women's houses and men's house. Well, in the dream, I came upon a men's longhouse. And I haven't had a really, really vivid uh, New Guinea or jungle dream for a while. So this really hit me. I go in to the longhouse and no one's there. We were talking earlier about silence. Well, this is as silent as the jungle gets when you start to hear different species of insects, you know. And, you know, that's how quiet it's starting to get. And in the center is this amazing model city and it's like no city i've ever seen it's got a little bit of kuala lumpur a little bit of taipei a little bit of shanghai the the pudang mm-hmm. district of shanghai you know with that really crazy mm-hmm. tinker toy buildings some of brasilia but then there are parts that look like venice you know canals and then there are ziggurats and then there are things that just plain look like termite towers mm-hmm. And I start to realize I'm getting really hypnotized by this thing. I'm not just curious. It's, it's got some sort of compulsion pressure on me. And I look and I see that little tiny insect machines are at work. And they are constantly dismantling and refurbishing and creating anew this city so that it's really not static at all. It's it's completely dynamic and under repair and progressing like second by second. And I realize that I am now so fascinated by this thing, I, I can't step away. And a village headman appears behind me, chief, Lulai. And he's got these this fantastic necklace of dog's teeth and porpoise teeth and shells and all sorts of stuff. And he's got a cassowary bone through his septum. And he looks at me and I don't, he doesn't really say, he doesn't move his mouth, but I hear clearly in, in English, my voice say you'll have to destroy it 
or you'll be trapped. And he produces this long newspaper cigarette. That's what they do. They roll oftentimes with newspaper, really terrible. You know, this uh, Virginia twist, they call it, which is just the rawest tobacco you can imagine. But it's lit. And he hands it to me and gestures, and I set the village. That's this amazing metropolis that's beyond my imagination and is completely both mechanically dynamic and organically dynamic, I set it on fire. And the thing just roars up and disappears. And I woke up thinking, wow, I saw that. I saw that. I was just there. It was one of those dreams. So that's the week stream. So that is interesting to me for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's... This is maybe something that we could talk about next time. We often think of waste as a negative because it normally is. Human waste is a huge mm-hmm. problem, huge piles of trash. What's really interesting about your dream, though, number one is the, the idea of keeping some things for yourself and for yourself only. Now, of course, you, you know, you shared this dream, right? But we can't we can't see it right you're not you're not writing a whole you know novel about this fictional city uh, no uh but what i what it's really speaking to me right now is the idea of creative wasteful behavior of creating things that will never be seen purchased or consumed but are simply delighted in by the artist in the moment and then uh and then destroyed and it's been it's actually been something that's been on my mind so this particular dream is really (laughs) excuse me resonating with me right now uh i think it's cool well that was a very interesting uh take on it which i think i i you know i think that is really uh a very important part of the whole artistic vector mm-hmm. to you know sure yeah that you know everyone does want to actually find audience or connection and unfortunately that also means being consumed but i think if there isn't that kind of just natural sharing which comes back to our terror or delight i think that's the delight mm-hmm. directive you know mm-hmm. And, and and delight in the complex ways, David, that you, you, you were talking about earlier, not in some sort of, you know, we're not talking about delight in some sort of sentimental fashion. David did a good job, I think, explaining the kind of nuance that we're seeing it from. But then there's the other side of, of sharing terror, sharing paranoia, sharing complaints, sharing, you know, and it does come down to, I think, what what is the natural instinct of what you want to share? Mm-hmm. I really, th- I think you can look at people in that stark terms. Are they sharing something in the terror spectrum or are they sharing something in the delight? Right. Or, I mean, a third option, are they sharing something because they feel compelled to? Uh, which is where I think a lot of us are now, where people are sharing... Um, um, take, for example, a meal. This is what I mean by... Uh, 
this this is what your dream speaks of to me. It would be very anti sharing a photo of of a nice meal that you had on Instagram, right? Um, because you ate it, and now it's gone, and <laughs> you can't keep that picture of it because the picture of it will begin to consume you. All of the uh, like a uh, 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 all the memories of every moment piling up. The dream is multifaceted, obviously, and I got more out of it than just this, but that's um that's what's coming to the surface right now but that i think will do it for this patreon bonus episode p19 october 11th 2021 from norman oklahoma and las vegas chris you got any words you want to take us out on uh just you know thanks to everyone for listening and being part of the community uh Think about coming to the happy hour. We, yeah. we had our first one, and it was fantastic. A big shout-out to uh, Selena, who is a friend of mine from Las Vegas. She added some glamour and some interesting feminine perspectives. And I only brought out and shared, to use one of our words, keywords this time, I only shared one uh, of my artifacts, my curiosities. There's plenty more where uh, those live. And they do live. They're part of the uh, the magic environment. Uh, and I depend on that. So join us for the happy hour. But in the meantime, be safe, be sane, and be sensible. <laughs>